Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Whole Love Song of the Garden by Anthony Baker St. Augustine taught that whenever we witness a true relationship of harmony forming in the world around us, we hear a new version of the oldest song there is, the music of the triune God. In the mountains just east of Madeline in Colombia, I met a man whose ear was attuned to this music. I was there with my wife, visiting her many aunts and uncles and cousins who had remained in the homeland when her own parents emigrated to the United States. One Saturday, when they were off work and out of school, the family said they wanted to show us the Fincas de los Silleteros, or country estates of the chair-bearers. That sounded confusing enough to pique my curiosity. On the winding road out of the city... Stephanie's cousin gave me a brief history of the Fincas. The indigenous and mestizo peoples of the region have for countless generations farmed this rich mountain soil, specialising in flowers that, once the Spanish arrived, the farmers would sell at markets in the growing colonial city of Medellin. Through the centuries of Spanish imperial presence, a strange and unique tradition developed. The poor inhabitants of the region, mostly but not only the indigenous peoples, would tie chairs to their backs and carry elderly, wealthy, sick or pregnant Spaniards through the Andes passes and into the villages and city. A sure-footed peasant could offer a smoother trip than a mule or a cart. The famous linguist and world traveller Alexander von Humboldt was among the first Europeans to document this practice. Moonlighting as Silleteros, the local farmers of the region decided their backpack chairs could serve also as baskets when it was time to carry their flowers down to the markets. Properly stacked and carefully transported, they could walk the five or so hours to the market without losing many petals and so have plenty of flowers to sell. They would return to their fincas with chairs full of rice and beans and cornmeal and other market goods. The history of the region is even more complex than all of that, involving the closing of the flower markets, a dramatic protest by the Silleteros, and the beginning of Fiera de las Flores, the Jin's largest annual festival. As we follow Don Fidel, the reigning patriarch of one family of Silleteros, I got the feeling that all that richly layered history served as backstory to his primary occupation caring for his beloved flowers. The festival was tradition, and the tourists, like me, paid the bills, but Don Fidel's first love was clearly his garden. Our guide led us on a meditative walk through the plots, apparently oblivious to the rain that was pelting us with increasing strength by the minute. As we walked, he pointed out to us the various species he nurtured, geraniums, colour lilies, Roses, hydrangeas, and many that I didn't know the English names for. Walking the hillside that his grandparents once farmed, Don Fidel was deeply familiar with the soil, the slopes and waterways, the rhythm of sunlight and shade. 
He knew where to look on the mountain horizon for rain clouds that might make it to his acreage. He even told us some secrets of his garden. He had both personal and ancestral memory of the various species and knew to group certain communities of flowers together to keep them healthy. He told us that the word pest is just a consumerist term for a living thing that threatens economies. In gardens and farms, we tend to eliminate them with chemicals. Don Fidel told us that all those pests lived in his garden as well, but because of the way he grouped his flowers, he knew that the predatory bugs would be near their prey and the system would find a balance. For extreme cases, he showed us the simple mixture he made from the flowers themselves that he used to fog the garden, much like the pre-Columbian peoples did with toxic tobacco leaves. Don Fidel was listening deeply to the music of his garden. He heard the refrain of the insects and flowers about what it was they most desired, and it wasn't chemical spray. The circular living economy enabled a remarkable new birth within the garden. Toward the end of the tour, when the rain had driven most of the family back into the wraparound porch of the house, Don Fidel was proud to show my wife and me what he'd learned about his sunflowers. The sunflower, girasol, or sunfacer, is a big draw for the shops in the city. Everyone wants the classic, grand, bright yellow flower. The particular variety grown in that region is sterile, modified by many generations of laboratory hybridization. But the gardener one day noticed something curious about the sterile male flowers he planted. A big group of them bloomed darker, nearly violet, and smaller, with multiple flowers on each stem. Why was this happening? It didn't seem to be disease, so he didn't worry. He just listened for a new melody. Soon he found the culprit, honeybees, flourishing in the garden thanks to Don Fidel's aversion to chemical pesticide. The proximity of the lab-altered flowers to a cousin species meant that bees could travel naturally from one sort to the next. The cousin was fertile, with both carpal and stamen. When the bees landed on the genetically modified girasoles, they brought the other pollen along with them. Remarkably, this landing changed the genetic makeup of the sunflowers and rendered them fertile once again. It undid generations of artificial selection to bring forth new life and new beauty. When St. Augustine contemplated the Trinity, he said that God is something like a lover and a beloved who find one another. Like a sunflower and its once estranged sexual partner, watching one another across a swathe of shorter garden flowers. It's a flawed image in many ways, as Augustine himself admits. God does not begin as two independent beings like the two flowers do. We might say that the triune God's image is reflected in the whole love song of the garden, the harmonious melody the organisms make together. At the heart of Augustine's analogy is the observation that Two can only become one if a third, a gift, passes back and forth between them. In theology, we call this third character the Holy Spirit. In Don Fidel's garden, it's the bees. They land on the faces of one and the other, transferring the gift of being and life in the pollen clinging to their feet. 
Notice also how the three, the sunflower, its distant cousin and the bee, are also one. The bee owes all that she is to the flowers, her habits, her communicative dance, the hairs on her feet. She is not just a bee looking to gather nectar from separate organisms called flowers. She is a living extension of the flower, the flower's winged desire for life and fertility. The same holds for the flowers. They become what their apian lover asks them to be. In surprising ways that not even the bee, let alone Don Fidel, could have guessed. In other words, the love song of two is always a song of three. The lover, the beloved, and the gift of love itself that passes between them and forms a new celebration of their bond. This, Augustine says, is the song that God sings from all eternity, and it's the song remixed a thousand ways that creatures of earth come to sing. Because he kept listening, Don Fidel heard a melody few of us would have noticed. A less curious gardener would have uprooted the flawed blooms and replanted the flowers that the shops down the mountain were asking for. As the rain soaked my clothes, I said a prayer of gratitude for his patient curiosity and for the love that binds the world together. A love whose proper name, according to the theologians, is God. Edward I and the Monk from China by Benjamin Sharkey In the summer of 1288, outside the city of Bordeaux in Gascony, a small group of travellers approached the city walls. The inhabitants of the city gathered, curious to meet this collection of strange-looking clergymen who were clearly far from home. The strangers told them that they had come from over the eastern sea with letters and gifts from the Mongol kings, and the patriarch in the east. Such strange reports from visitors emerging from the unseen world over the horizon, a world known only from fantastical stories, deserved the immediate attention of the king. Edward I, the Duke of Gascony and King of England, had been resident in Bordeaux for the last two years, overseeing the affairs of his duchy. Assembling his court, he welcomed these visitors from the east, the leader of the travellers was a monk named Raban Sawa. He was an Uyghur Turk from China and he presented to Edward letters and gifts from the Mongol ruler of Persia, the Oikhan Argun, a great-great-grandson of Genghis Khan, and the patriarch Maya Balaha, the head of the Church of the East. As a young lord, Edward had taken the Crusaders' oath to go and fight to attempt to regain Jerusalem for Latin Christendom from the rule of unbelievers. Jerusalem had fallen from Crusader control in 1244 after the city had been sacked by a large force of Kipchak warriors, nomads from the Central Asian steppes, who had been displaced by the expanding Mongol Empire. Arriving in 1271, Lord Edward managed to break the siege of the port city of Acre, one of the last cities held by the King of Jerusalem. Over the next two years, however, his small force accomplished little, mostly skirmishing with herdsmen and burning houses and crops. His time in Acre came ignominiously to an end 
when he was stabbed with a poisoned dagger by one of his Muslim courtiers, leading to lengthy and painful surgery. He left the dream of reaching Jerusalem behind him. Returning from crusade, Lord Edward was greeted with the news of his father Henry III's death, heralding the start of his own reign. It wasn't until 1274 that he finally reached England for his coronation. There, in Westminster Abbey, he was invested with the splendour of Christian kingship. He swore on the gospel books to uphold and dispense justice and, having been anointed, he was dressed by the bishops in priestly robes and given a sword for the defence of the weak and constraining those who do wrong to the church. Now here in Bordeaux, these new visitors represented something quite outside his experience. Edward would have been familiar with the stories of Prester John, reports of a grand and mysterious figure, a Christian ruler somewhere in the east who was both a priest and king had begun circulating in the mid-twelfth century and were still current in European imaginations, especially as they tried to make sense of the new world that was opening up to them through contact with the Mongols. While there was not really any great Christian king in the Mongol Empire, this legend does reflect the correct sense of medieval Europeans that a whole world of Christianity was going on beyond their horizon. Many historians today believe that until perhaps as late as the 14th century, there were more Christians outside than inside Europe. Yet in our books of global church history, these believers rarely get more than a slim chapter, unrepresentative of their large share of the historical Christian demographic and experience. Throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages, there were significant numbers of Christians across Asia and Africa in Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia and Persia, India, Central Asia and China. Christians had been present in China as early as the 6th century, with significant numbers elsewhere much earlier. Meanwhile, Egypt and many other areas of the Middle East had predominantly Christian populations until at least the 12th to 14th centuries which continued to make up significant minorities into the 20th century. In the Middle Ages, these areas were global centres of population and development. Bordeaux was one of the largest cities in Europe at the time, with a population of nearly 30,000. But cities like Alexandria, Baghdad, Merv in present-day Turkmenistan, and Samarkand in present-day Uzbekistan – were among the biggest in the world, with populations in hundreds of thousands, far larger than any in Europe. Present in the historical record of all these urban centres were Christian communities. We find them scattered across the textual record, although for many of these regions this record is far patchier than for medieval Europe. But when we dig literally, archaeologically, we consistently find the evidence of Christian communities that no text ever told us about. By far the largest group of Christians outside Europe was the Church of the East. This church, once termed inaccurately Nestorian, was entirely distinct from the Eastern Orthodox churches, but had rather grown out of those early churches that had been founded to the east of Judea, outside of the Roman Empire, in Persian-ruled Mesopotamia. They soon rapidly grew 
to include communities across Asia, from Syria to China and India and Mongolia. Syriac, a dialect of Aramaic, was the primary language of worship, prayer and literature in these communities. But the Gospels, Psalms and hymns were often translated into local vernaculars. Growing up outside the Constantinian Revolution, which had seen the ushering in of the conception of Christian kingship with the Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity, never succeeding in converting the Persian Shah or any other significant rulers, these Eastern Christians had no experience of existing in a Christian state. Throughout the Church of the East, Christians always lived in pluralistic societies. The patriarch, the head of the church, was indeed, for most of the Middle Ages, based in Baghdad, also the seat of the Muslim caliph, from where he oversaw the affairs of more communities than the Pope in Rome. By the time that Rabban Solma made his journey to Europe, there were Christians throughout the Mongol Empire, the largest empire until then, these included many Mongol queens, cartoons, such as Sorkatani Beki, the mother of Kublai Khan, as well as many ordinary Mongols. Christianity had been present in Mongolia for at least a century by the rise of Genghis Khan in the early 13th century and was very popular among many of the tribes he subordinated. Christianity, for well over the first two-thirds of its existence then, was not a majority European faith, and today it is again not majority Western. Most Christians throughout history have lived outside Europe and North America, in pluralistic societies, ruled over by and living alongside non-Christians. The Western experience is not just unrepresentative of Christianity today, but unrepresentative Christianity in the past. Christendom has been only a small part of the Christian experience. This was the experience of the monk who stood before Edward I. Rabban Sorma had grown up in Kanbalik, the city of the Khan, present-day Beijing. When still in his early twenties, out of the love of his lord, he had become a hermit, living in a cave near a mountain spring, in the manner of many Chinese Taoist, Buddhist, poet and artist ascetics. People would regularly make the day's journey from the city to come to hear him preach. He was later joined in his secluded life by another young man with a desire to lead a life for Christ named Mark. The two had lived together for some time when one day Mark shared with the older hermit his desire to visit Jerusalem. Together they set out on the long and perilous journey to see Jerusalem and all the sights of the life of Jesus. Like a reverse Marco Polo, they travelled west across the Mongol Empire sometime in the early 1270s, perhaps indeed at the same time as Marco Polo, taking the opportunity for long-distance travel which the continent-spanning Mongol Empire had made possible. When the two monks eventually reached Iraq, they were told that fighting between the Mongols and the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, who then controlled Jerusalem, had made travelling the final part of the journey impossible. So they settled down in Iraq until the time might come when it would be safe to make the journey. Such a time never came, but while they were in Iraq, they became involved in the life of the church. 
and when in 1281 the patriarch died, it was with some surprise that Solmer's young companion Mark found himself chosen by the bishops to be the new patriarch. He chose the new name Yabalaha. He was the first believer from more eastern regions of the church to be chosen as patriarch, reflecting the greater involvement such believers were able to have in the life of the whole church under the Mongols. In 1287, the Mongol Ilkhan Argun, seeking to use his European desire to regain Jerusalem to coordinate attacks against the enemy in Egypt, asked Yabalaha to provide a Christian messenger to go to Europe with gifts and letters for its Christian kings. Yabalaha recommended his mentor Solma, also providing him with his own letters of friendship for the Europeans. A year later, having visited the cardinals in Rome, who had quizzed him on his beliefs and been left perfectly satisfied that he shared the same beliefs as them, and in Paris, the King of France, who had shown him around the rapidly expanding city with its sprawling universities, Solma met the King of Inglatar. In their audience, Edward's attention was particularly caught by the reference to the Ilkhan's letter to Jerusalem, having again taken the crusading oath only the spring before. But Solma was far more interested in using his trip to see artefacts associated with the characters from the Gospels, to hear stories of heroes of humility and of the miracles God had worked in the lives of saints, and to observe the novelty of life in a predominantly Christian society. In the evening, Sorma was invited to lead the king in worship. There in Bordeaux, near where the Garonne flows into the Atlantic, the King of England knelt as the monk who had grown up not far from the banks of the Yellow River, began singing in Syriac. On the altar, Solma broke the bread, made the sign of the cross over the chalice of wine. As he broke up the bread, he sang, in his language, Our Father in Heaven. Edward and some of his courtiers and clerics might have recognised the prayer and tried to repeat the strange words or to follow along reciting in Latin. The king and his courtiers approached and Sorma served them. The King of England and the Chinese monk together participating in the divine mystery of Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. The Age of Reenchantment and How Brands Will Exploit It by Daniel Kim Last month, Wonderman Thompson published a new insight report called The Age of Reenchantment. I was giddy to get into it, not least because Seen and Unseen has a podcast called Reenchanting, which you should listen to, by the way. For the uninitiated, Wonderman Thompson is a 20,000-person strong global advertising agency who literally invented the term marketing back in 1961. With clients like Heinz Ketchup, Burger King, Bose, HSBC, Kit Kat and countless other ubiquitous brands, they are a culture-shaping juggernaut. They're no joke. Like all Wonderman reports, the age of reenchantment 
is meticulously researched, beautifully presented, and written with finesse in terms left, right and centre, like joy deficit and sensory tectopias. It had me nodding along from the get-go. Enchantment is fulfilling a craving for feelings of wonder and awe, an appetite for joy and fun, and an openness to thrills and adventures. Yes! The two top emotions that people want more of in their lives are joy and hope. Yes, yes! We live in a rational, explained world, and one in which we are harried and anxious, with little time to pause and pursue these sensations. Yes, yes, yes! But then, as I read on, my warm glee turned into abject horror. In the introduction of the report, Marie Stafford, the global director of Wonderman Thompson, wrote, It's time to remake the world through the lens of re-enchantment, where the new brand metrics are jaw drops, heart swells and goosebumps. Brands can help people transcend tough times and jolt them from long-standing malaise by celebrating the thrilling and uplifting, the awe-inspiring and the magical. In other words... The market has recognised this profound existential hunger in culture at large and will now try and extract capital value from it. A couple of months ago, I wrote a piece for Seen and Unseen on the dangers of selling spirituality and wellness and how it had become a $3.7 trillion industry, warning that we can't let our spiritual hunger be commodified for profit. Well, get ready, folks. Here comes the re-enchanting brands here to do just that. The middle bulk of the report parades a lineup of case studies that have lent into the age of re-enchantment. Some brands, like Levi Strauss, were leaning into themes of mortality and death in the post-pandemic period, such as the 2023 campaign Greatest Story Ever Worn, Legends Never Die. This ad dramatises the true story of a man who requested all his loved ones wear Levi's to his funeral. Others were leaning into the desire for transcendence, trying to legally replicate spiritual and psychedelic experiences. Of note was a new VR experience called Isness D, developed to deliver a transcendent experience that replicates spiritual and near-death experiences. Apparently this VR product has similar effects to a medium dose of LSD. The report also recommended that brands tap into the joy economy. Yep, you heard that right. That means advocating for moments of joy, play and fun, because that can be a powerful strategy for brands to uplift and engage customers. After all, 49% of people say that they would be even more likely to purchase from a brand that brings them a sense of joy. In fact, the CEO of Daybreak, a fitness and dance company, even said that one of the core KPIs for her business is tears of joy. Look, I'm sure they mean well, but quite frankly, I don't want to be a part of a world where tears of joy are considered key performance indicators for brands. Tears of joy are for weddings, reunions or the end of a national war, not a market transaction. Similarly, I find something bizarrely distasteful about a mortality-themed brand activation. Yes, embrace your mortality and stare into the void. 
but don't forget to buy our 501 original Levi denim. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going to seek out experiences of profound spiritual transcendence, I'm sure as hell not going to do it in some VR fate LSD hellscape nightmare that I overpaid for. There's a profound irony in all of it. There's a chunky section in the report about the rise of new spiritual rebels, the ever-growing community of people interested and practising non-traditional religions like witchcraft and paganism. The report recognises that wrapped up in this movement, there is a desire to break things down and build them up again in paths of inclusive post-capital futures. How are brands meant to respond to that? Ah yes, nodded the advertiser. Now, how do we bake that into our new spring campaign for Airbnb? Maybe an authentic wicker hut in Salem could be the hero ad. It's absurd. This is blindingly obvious, but brands will be hopeless at addressing questions of mortality, transcendence, or serendipity, hope, joy, and meaning in a chaotic and anxious world. I love brands, but that's above their pay grade. Unfortunately, that won't stop them from trying to commodify re-enchantment and extract capital value from it. No, thank you. The age of re-enchantment is real, and this report does a tremendous job at demonstrating it. But this piece of work is not, and shouldn't be, for brands. It should be for community and religious leaders. And it should be for you. And so I will end this article in a similar vein to my last one. If you are going to embark on this journey of re-enchanting our society with joy, spiritual depth and existential meaning, we can't let that hunger be commodified for profit. The re-enchantment of our hearts is too important for that. It is worth more, infinitely more, than 501 Originals. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.